Hello, insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with my good friend and inside co-host, and Pat Darcy, welcoming you to an <laughs> opening day, to, to an opening day 2021 edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in. We have a much different sort of show for you today. We're taking a one-week break from politics. We'll be talking baseball today. Major League Baseball opening day is April 1st, and with the reduction of COVID lockdown restrictions, fans will be back in the ballparks. The beer will be flowing and the hot dogs grilling. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, In addition to Eb and I, old friend, former Major League star and two-time World Series champion. Did you wear the rings today? No, they're too big. Oh, for crying out loud. I was really hoping you'd wear at least one of them. Uh, Pat Darcy, part of the Big Red Machine, uh, and Pat will be with us here the entire hour. Joining us around the third inning today at 1.15 via the Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Live Line will be author Will Gagin, who wrote a very interesting book, about the other college league, Cape Cod, Alaska, California, and Midwest leagues. Joining us in the later innings is our cleanup hitter, former Major League player and MLB channel analyst, Bill Ripken, who will talk to us about his book, State of Play, and generally talk baseball in the upcoming season. So grab your glove, put on your cleats, and get ready for baseball. We welcome your calls about baseball today at the Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Hotline at 790-2040. This portion of the show is brought to you by my co-host, Ab Wilkinson, and Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby step approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on socialized security. Eb manages family wealth for our own family and does a great job. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. All right, friends, I have a disclosure to make. I've never played one inning of baseball. Never had it at bat in an organized game other than the scrub games we played on the empty lot across the street from our house on Richard's Place. Growing up, I was always the last kid chosen for those games because I was the biggest spaz on our block. Couldn't see the baseball, couldn't do anything right. Uh, but I love baseball. Listening to Vince Scully in the middle of the night, uh, Dodger baseball at that time was uh, played on the radio stations here. And I'm hoping to make this kind of a show a yearly tradition on Inside Track because baseball is a very small D democratic game where everyone is judged solely by their results. Hit a home run pitch a great game, or make a circus catch flying into the deepest part of the ballpark to deny the other team of a win, and the crowd cheers and remembers the play sometimes forever. However, strikeout, looking to to end uh, uh, at the end of the game or commit an error in the field, and you're stripped naked in the middle of the ballpark for everyone to see you. 
in baseball as in life, even if you strike out, you have a chance to redeem yourself in the very next inning or in the next game. Among many things, that is why baseball is such a great game. Many of our listeners know local baseball star with the Reds and the Astros, Pat Darcy, not only a great pitcher, but a successful business person, community leader in Tucson, and Pat, overall, good guy. You're one of the good guys. Pat was excited about talking uh, baseball with us on Inside Track, and he showed up here at KVOI last Saturday. He just couldn't wait to get here. You never gave me the date. <laughs> well, you told me Saturday. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, hey, the host is always right. The host is always right. Uh, welcome, Pat. Nice Thank to have you God. here. Likewise. All right. So, I think there's probably a statute of limitations, Pat. So you can answer me. Truthfully, as I know you always will. Oh, great. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Major League Baseball Commissioner warns today, uh, cheating pitchers, he calls them, about using foreign substances on baseballs. Did you ever use a foreign substance on a baseball to give it a little extra spin? Well, you know, it was different back when I was playing is that they, uh, you know, the ball stayed in plate a lot. And sometimes you get a ball that, you know, National League balls were smaller than American League balls. And so you get a ball, a little cut on it, and you wanted to keep it. You know, you don't want to throw it, throw it out. So that was, and the ball moves some. That's why guys were cutting the ball. You'd have something in their belt buckle to cut the ball. The ball will move. Wow. And so, you know, a lot of times when I throw the ball to, you know, the, the umpire throw me a ball out there, and I would be kind of built too big, so I'd throw it back. So then two innings later, he'd throw it out again. And I said, I don't want this ball. He said, I was just testing you. <laughs> see, <laughs> see, <laughs> but, but, you know, guys did. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'd be out there pitching. And because, you know, it's in the, again, the ball stayed in plate a lot. And the ball would be all wet from the other pitcher. Throwing, some, kind really? Of oh, yeah, something on the ball. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, that's a, yeah. I, I never thought about it <laughs> yeah, that yeah. way. Yeah, because it's not like today the ball touches the ground, they throw it out of the game. Right. These balls, in fact... You threw a player threw the ball in the stands. You got fined. Now every inning they're throwing the ball in the stands. I got yelled at by Frank Sansip for yeah. for going out. I was a shagger at the ball games for the U of A, and Jay Ray Roque had just hit a home run into the left field uh, 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 corner of High Corbett Field against I think the University of Denver in one of the regional playoff games. So I go out there, run, find the ball in, in this middle of an equipment yard, bring it back into the dugout for Jay Ray. You would have thought I had just robbed a bank. Frank Sansett <laughs> called me every every name in the book, and, and and that was my job was to make sure the balls could be you know used again. So I know what you're saying about them using balls in those days. Yeah, I remember right. this one thing too. We were Don Sutton, you know, the Dodgers and the Reds. That was a big rival yeah, back sure. then. And Don Sutton, before doing batting practice, came over to our dugout and they had a bag of balls there. He gets the ball, starts throwing them to Cincinnati fans. <laughs> <laughs> they were not happy with that at all. <laughs> so let me talk. To, let me talk to you about something. Yep. You know, today statistics are everything in baseball. They always have been, but they know the people who keep track of this stuff. They know where a hitter is going to hit in almost any situation, right? Right. So they have players. I mean, they literally have cards that they carry with them out on the field, and so you know they know where to go. Would it have helped you as a pitcher to have had the shift? Because well, it, it would have robbed a lot of singles and doubles, brother. But we did kind of have a shift for like Willie McCovey. Uh -huh. You know, I remember when he was with the Padres when I was playing with the Reds. He had a line drive between my legs and Concepcion caught it behind second base and threw him out. 
So there were shifts going on. I, can, I remember looking at some old pictures of Connie Mack Stadium, and there was a picture of they had the shift on. So, you know, if you hit the ball one way, guys are not going to – they're not they're going to move over where the chance are you hit a ball. And, I, you know, so that's just the way it is. Hitters are going to hit the way. They're going to pull the ball. They're going to pull the ball. And, like, you see these pit players now, there's no one on the left side of the infield. They can right. butt and get a hit, but they don't want to want They, they want to hit a home run. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So, question for you. The Astros, you played in the organization yes. for a while. I know you yes. have some allegiances, maybe. Um, they clearly cheated to win their World Series title against the Dodgers. Um, explain why signal stealing can so influence the outcome of a game. Oh, it's huge because the pitcher, you know, they know what – the hitter knows what's coming, and so they're you know these are major league hitters, and if you let them know what's coming, that that's real you know that's not you know that's not right at all. And I'm sure they weren't the first ones to do it. Right. I remember. Well, that, they know that Boston was doing it oh, as yeah, well. Yeah. And I I, knew, I remember they were saying it back when in when it was the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they had a by third base coaching box. You had, they had a buzzer on the ground every time. Every time the pitcher called for a curl, that buzzer would ring, and the coach would get that little jing in his foot and <laughs> signal the hitter what's coming up. Well, yeah. weren't they also using some kind of a camera or something? Yeah. Uh, out in the outfield to zero yeah, in on yeah. the catcher signals as yeah. well. Yeah, I had a in AAA. My manager with Houston was Jimmy Williams, and he was telling a story. He said they were getting the signs from second base. The, the base runner were reeling to the hitter, so they're hitting the pitchers pretty good. And so he, the guy on second, he's at the hitting, and the guy's not giving a sign. And the first pitch knocks him down. Next pitch hits him. So he says to the guy, says, how come you didn't tell him? Well, coming, well, the catch, the pitcher was doing this, mean flip him. <laughs> he says, how can I tell you that? Relay that. He's going to hit you. <laughs> All right. Listen, we we got a lot of baseball to talk about. Pat's going to be staying with us for the entire hour. When we return, Pat Darcy, Ab and I will talk with author Will Gagin about his book, The Summer League. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a jiffy. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever 
have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by my friends, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Mm -hmm. Iron and Metal, Surplus and Essential termite and pest control. These are two great locally owned family businesses you can depend upon. I do, so should you. Jamie is just about ready to give birth to their second uh, child and uh, wish her on. She's uh, due, I think, April 4th. Hey, I was first introduced uh, to our next guest, Will Gagin, in a book review a little over a year ago in the Wall Street Journal. That's my go-to place for book reviews. His book, Summer Baseball Nation, nine days in the Wood Bat Leagues, caught my eye because I hung out with several U of A baseball players when I was in college who either played in the Alaska or Cape Cod uh, summer college league. So, uh, Will, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bruce. I appreciate it. Yeah, so what prompted you to write Summer Summer Baseball Nation, nine days in the Wood Bat Leagues? Yeah, it was, it was in the works, um, you know, for a while. The, the roots of it probably go back to uh, to growing up. Um, my, vac- my family always vacationed on Cape Cod, so we went to, went to Cape Cod League games, and uh, I kind of fell in love with it. Just the, the idea of seeing these future major leaguers, um, uh, and and you see, you're really seeing them up up close, and you're getting autographs after the game. And, um, you know, they're passing the hat, and it's the players coming around. Um, so I just love that part of it. Um, and then as I, as I grew up, I got into sports writing, started covering um, the New England Collegiate Baseball League uh, at a local paper in Rhode Island uh, where I live and continued to follow the Cape League with a, with a blog online called Wrightfield Fog. And from there, I just sort of discovered that, that um, there are leagues all over the country that are kind of doing yeah. the same thing. It's, it's, it's big talent and it's, it's small towns, kind of a community atmosphere. So I decided to, to take the plunge and, and try to tell some stories from Summer Baseball Nation, and, and that's what we did. So, Bill, explain why these summer leagues are called the Wooden Bat League, and, and why is that so important to these players? Right. So college baseball for a long time has, has used uh, metal bats, um, and, and that's you know, different, obviously, from, from Major League Baseball and Pro Ball in general. So this offers a chance, um, you know, for them to, to get challenged. Um, not that they don't, they may use wood bats, you know, growing up playing AAU ball and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's big for them, preparation for the pros. Uh, and it's also big for, for scouts and for major league teams to look at these guys and say, all right, this guy may have had, you know, inflated power numbers. His batting average was better. Where, where does he really fit? And they see them in the in the Cape League or, or the Alaska League or, or any of these leagues really, and they see what uh, you know, what he does with a wood bat, and, and they see what pitchers do uh, when they're when they're not facing guys with with metal bats. So it, it gives a sort of a, a better picture, um, and so it's, so, it's, so it's a good opportunity for these guys, uh, especially in the in the off season. So we have a special guest with us today, Pat Darcy, who uh, played professional baseball. He was a pitcher uh, in the Houston Astro organization and with the Cincinnati Reds, won two World Series uh, titles uh, while at, while at uh, Cincinnati. Uh, did you use metal bats in, in high school and college? Uh, well, you didn't play, you didn't play high, 
Yeah, we had to play college. Yeah. But did you use any metal? No, we didn't. But I, I remember they would bring some metal bats out. We were, you know, playing in the major leagues, and they and these hitters go, man. I want to use these bats, you know? <laughs> but I just wonder. Well, how many how many players go up to the league, uh, Cape Cod League, and have never used a wooden bat before? Will. Hello, Will. I think we lost Will. We're, we're going to find out here real quick. Will, are you back? Back. All right, we oh, lost you. Pat had just asked the question: How many of the players uh, in the Cape Cod League or the other uh, summer college leagues have never used anything but, uh, you know, an aluminum or, or metal bat? Right. I, I think there are. You know, a lot of them have probably, um, you know, certainly tried metal bats and maybe trained with metal bats, but or with wood bats rather. But when it comes to gameplay in high school and college, it's really exclusively metal. So it's different for them, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I was saying that uh, they they would bring some, when I was playing in the major leagues, they bring some metal bats out in batting practice, and the hitters would go, man, I want to use these bats. But, you know, they didn't. They, they, it was all wood bats, you know, in major leagues, still is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like it's a huge difference by all accounts. No, you can't break the bat. You know, hit somebody in the handle, they'll still get a base hit on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, you get jammed and still get a single. So, Will, pre-COVID, um, these, you know, these different college leagues were doing pretty well. Um, how has COVID affected them? They were, were they playing at all last summer? It was a little bit of a split. Some leagues um, took, the, took the whole summer off, and then some decided to try to give it a go, um, either short seasons or – or some modified seasons. A few leagues um, did kind of pods, like the Northwoods League, which is a big league in the in the uh, upper Midwest. They would have three teams playing at one location and just sort of round robin playing each other. So it was it was a tough year. Um, even I think you know, some of the leagues that did play you know, maybe couldn't have the same fan support that they had. Right. And couldn't take in as much revenue. Uh, and then for the leagues that didn't play. Yeah, it you know it cut down on on costs obviously, but no revenue coming in. Um, so yeah, it was it was tough, and I know it, it looks like every a lot of leagues will be back up and running this year. The Cape League, which took last year off, um, has every intention to play this summer. Um, so it'll be good to kind of get that going again because the communities really miss the baseball too. I know, especially on the Cape League. So I know in the Cape League, a buddy of mine lived in Chatham during the summer, and. For when Chatham was playing Falmouth, I mean, it was not unusual to have six thousand fans there watching these games. I mean, the it's like the entire town uh, was there. Tell us the vibe in towns like Chatham or Dunkirk or Fredonia, uh, you know, with with these college leagues. I mean, how how do these leagues, you know, how do they interact with with the local population? Yeah, it's. I mean, they're they're really institutions. I mean, the Cape League has been around a long time. Started as sort of a, a town town league, so these teams have have deep roots. And then even when they expanded and, and went to the college player model, the kids are staying with host families. So you have built in connections there. Um, and working then, sometimes you know, they, in their in their grocery store or at the yeah, hardware exactly. store or something. Right, yeah, these these kids are very much visible in the community. Um, so, you know, they have the host families and then other families who, who may be vacationing or, or who live there. Their kids are doing clinics during the day at the field with these guys. And then, 
you know, they're going on and, and watching those games at night. So it's very much a family atmosphere. And you'll see guys, um, you know, years later when they're in the major leagues, they're inviting their former Cape Cod host families to come to games and they're oh, taking pictures right. and all that stuff. It, it really, if you form some deep connections, um, in, in, even though the summer is short. Hey, so, Will, this is Eb. Quick question. Your parents are from New England. Correct. How the heck did they end up in Louisville, and what were they doing that allowed you the ability to go to New England for the summers? Yeah, my, my dad was a, a professor uh, of biochemistry. He taught medical students and dental students, so he got a job at the University of Louisville, so that's what took them down there. Um, and then my mom was a teacher, so we were able to get away for a, a few weeks every summer and, and headed back, uh, back east. That's, that's great. So, so, yeah, Pat, so Pat and Will, we have a, a question from Paul uh, to, the, to the show, and his question is, what happened to Class D ball? Well, really, some of the... Paul, are you there with us? Paul? Hello, Paul. Paul. Well, well anyway. Leagues, yeah. All right. Well, so, there he is. So there you go. So, so uh, Will and Pat, some of these same towns probably were Class D uh, baseball towns in the 40s and 50s and so on, weren't they? I mean, they were playing sometimes in the same ballpark that these professional players were playing in back in the 40s and 50s, weren't they? Yeah, sure. There were a ton of minor league teams back then because they were individually owned. And so, you know, like me, you know, the no one really tied to the team. And then the major league started, you know, getting the teams and the players be contract with them. But, you know, there were, there were like... Dodgers had two Triple A teams, something like that. It was all there was baseball was all over the place back then. Did we answer your yeah. question, Paul? Yeah, I'm still here. Did we answer your question on that? Uh, no, not really. I wanted a comment. Oh, please fire away. Uh, yeah, I uh, 49 was my last year in high school, and uh, I can tell you through high school, uh, uh, Class D ball in 1950. Uh, and into uh, college until I went into the until uh, into the service when the Korean War started, but all of our coaches uh, showed us how to how to steal signs and get inside information that we shouldn't have that that uh, uh, really I, I don't think should have been uh, good sportsmanship but it was going on all the time and i'm sure it's going on all the time right now and i don't think houston should be particularly chastised for getting caught i think i think mainly it's because they're texans and too many new yorkers hate texans oh i'm i'm not a new yorker i'm a dodger fan and I can't stand the Astros for what they did. Uh, they they stole the series from my team, and I will never forget them, even though Houston's uh, farm club, the Toros, played here for many, many years, and I was a fan of the Astros in those days. So, uh, Well, if you'd, if, you'd been a, if you'd been a player in college or even high school, I guarantee you that you would have gotten instructions on how to pick up signs and get information that was not, not sportsmanlike. All right. And and everybody was doing it, and I'm sure still are doing it. Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate your comments, and thanks for calling in. Hey, um, Will, Darren Erstad, you told a great story about him playing uh, in the uh, in the Cape League, I think. And um, what did he do uh, with his other uh, sporting uh, uh, activity uh, during or after those games? Wasn't he kicking some football around? 
Yeah, yeah. So Darren Erstad went to Nebraska, and in addition to playing baseball, he was uh, a kicker and punter on the football team. So he played for the Falmouth Commodores in the Cape League, and, and they play at a, a multi-purpose facility that's also a high school football field. So yeah, sometimes before games, out in the afternoon when uh, when batting practice is going on, he'd be kicking field goals, practicing uh, field goals. So that was yeah, that was one of my favorite stories. Heard that from the guy who's currently the uh, Cape League president um, and was was at the time uh, worked with the Falmouth organization. So that was pretty funny. Of of all the different college summer leagues, is Cape Cod kind of the most organized, or is there? Does the Alaska League, which one has sort of the the predominance these days? Yeah, I mean, they're all very well run at this point and all, um, you know, really, really well organized, great, um, you know, great people in, involved. The Cape League is still number one in terms of talent, in terms of fans, fan support a little bit. Uh, there's some that are, some other leagues that are um, drawing big numbers as well. But the talent still still goes to the Cape League. That's where the scouts are. That's where the, the best players are. Um, so it is, it is definitely still number one. Yeah. After my, uh, my freshman year, I went to Mesa Community College, played for Jim Brock, and they said I signed with Houston, but I was invited to play in the, in the Basin League. And uh, that's, mm. like, that's back in, like, Dakotas, right? North Dakota, South Dakota, stuff like that. Yeah, that was, that was really one of the first ones um, that really kind of hooked into that, like, all-college player mm-hmm. model. A lot of, you know, a lot of, like, the Cape League was, was like a town league at the time, but the Basin League was sort of the forerunner of it, um, which I, I don't think it's, it's not around anymore, but at the time... I didn't know that. I, I, thought that the, I, I thought the Cape League was the thing that started it out. So that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's news to me. That's, that's great history. So... Pat, you obviously had lots of friends who played baseball, uh, some who, who rose into the major leagues like you did. How many of them came out of the same kind of, uh, you know, summer league experience that you did? Quite a few that went to college. You know, you know, baseball signs a lot of guys to high school. Instead of, you know, professional baseball, you go to high school instead of college. But I knew quite a few guys who played in Alaska, and they played in that, you know, was it 24 hours or something like that. The game started, like, late in the evening and went through the night, something like that. Yeah, the Midnight Sun game, which is um, featured in the book, they play. They start the game at around ten o'clock at night, uh, and just play past past midnight with with no lights because the sun just sort of barely barely sets in Alaska on the summer solstice. So that wow. was pretty cool. Well, Will, we have to go to our bottom of the hour break. Thanks for joining us today in this special opening day show and writing summer. Baseball Nation, Nine Days in the Woodback Le- Wood Bat Leagues, published by Nebraska Press. It's 226 pages. It's a great read. Where can our listeners pick up the book? Pretty much anywhere books are sold, Amazon, University of Nebraska Press website. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter if they're interested at Summer Nine Nation. Thanks very much for, for coming on the show today. All right, Producer Tom, let's go to our bottom of the hour break. Bill Ripken from MLB Network and author of State of Play will join us when we get back. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing metal plate and roofing materials as well as new and used steel aluminum and stainless steel to ranchers artists 
interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce here, Eb is here, and so is former Major League star Pat Darcy. Before we get to our next guest, MLB Network analyst and author of State of Play, Bill Ripken, do you have a home improvement project you want to get going, but you're worried if you can afford the luxury you deserve? Corazon Cabinets sells top-quality cabinets by J&K, Legacy, and Conestoga. Visit the Corazon Crew at their new showroom located at 4700 South Park. Meet Joy, Allie, and David to see their fabulous collection and let them plan the kitchen or bath of your dreams. Call Corazon Cabinets, 488-2266. That's 488-2266, Eb, to get to work on beautifying your home in 2021. Corazon Cabinets, luxury you can afford. On to our special guest, Bill Ripken. We're ditching politics uh, today, Bill, to talk about America's uh, pastime. And, and friends, very few of you probably don't know who Bill Ripken is, but I'm going to say it anyway. William Oliver Ripken, nicknamed Billy the Kid, do they still call you that, Bill? Uh, I don't know if they ever really called me that. It just seemed to be one of those things that if I was Bill or Billy, they were going to call me Billy the Kid. I think it happened a short period of time when I first got called up. That was right around when uh, Oliver North Craze was going wild. <laughs> and uh, I saw him uh, sitting in Memorial Stadium, and I made reference to both of our haircuts were similar, and that seemed to take legs of its own, too. So uh, I don't know how much anybody really called me Billy the Kid, but I'll take it, whatever. <laughs> well, uh, Billy played in the big leagues from 87 to 98 for the Orioles twice, Texas Rangers, Cleveland Indians, and Detroit Tigers. During his career, he batted and threw right-handed. He is part of one of the most famous baseball families ever. And Bill is a radio ho- Are you still a radio host at XM uh, Satellite? No, I haven't done that in a while. Okay. Um, every now and then I'll, I'll go in there and you know wax poetic. But uh, myself and Cal... We used to do a Friday show together from 12 to 2, but that's been 
I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. I can't remember. Hey, you need to up, somebody needs to update your your Wikipedia uh, page. Uh, but you are a studio analyst at MLB Network, which is where I see him a lot during the season and those lonely winter months between seasons. Bill, welcome to Inside Track. Well, thank you, Bruce, for having me. And uh, we must update that because uh, my new one should say that I won an Emmy up there at MLB Network as an analyst. So maybe I need to go into the Wikipedia page myself and start updating. You do, because I'm not sure they they talk about your Emmy, but that is quite an accomplishment. And your book, State of Play, um, wow, it's a great book. And uh, it's, 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 it's not about who hits better right-handed against lefties in afternoon games when it's a clear game, uh, when it's a clear sky, but only 90 de- 93 degrees, is it? It's not about that kind of level of statistics, is it? You don't believe no, in that. No, it, it, it's not. And, and the, the reason why I put that out is for the longest time when this analytics craze, you know, four or five years ago started to take hold, there seemed to be this thought process that the new school, the analytical um, group, um, was kind of casting shade on the old school guys thinking that they don't, you know, analyze things in the game. And I just kind of wanted to point out that most everything in the game today that works, worked in yesteryear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the craze of high fastball, the spin rate that they want to talk about. Well, Sandy Koufax has some black and white video up there at the network throwing high fastballs with an overhand hook. Um, Nothing really has changed. There just seems to be this way now that we can measure everything and we have to name everything that there was this connotation that the old folks just rolled the bats and balls out on the field and said, go get them. And that's just not the case. It never was. So, so you wrote, give two guys who are beasts of the batter's box so I can hit them third and fourth of my lineup, and I'll figure out the rest. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> well, that, that kind of stemmed from the Nationals winning the World Series a couple years ago. And, you know, the, the analytic world has this craze out there where they're hitting their so-called best hitter in the two-hole. And I don't like it. I think that they're wasting opportunities for that so-called best hitter to get opportunities in the first inning um, with men on base that they could possibly do some damage. So I, I merely pointed out that there's a lot of cases, in my opinion, that hitting a guy third and hitting a guy fourth in a lineup is good. And if you go back and look at the Nationals when they won the World Series, Rendon and uh, Soto refused to get beat at home plate. These two guys, as I called them in the book, beasts, but they were animals. They 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 didn't strike out. They hit sack flies. Yes, the boring sack fly with a man on third. They hit some big home runs. But with two strikes, those guys were better than every other team's three, four hitters throughout the uh, postseason. And ultimately, they ended up winning the World Series. So I think that Davey Johnson... I mean, not Davey Johnson. Um, I'm I'm brain cramping because I played for Davey Johnson. Uh, But I think when he put those two guys in the order. Yeah, it was Davey Johnson. No, not Davey Johnson. No, Uh, was it Garcia? No. (laughs) Well, we're both brain farting right now. My brain is just mush. (laughs) The idea was that they filled around different guys in that lineup, and they had some so-called role players that they could use. But if you have a beast, 
I'm going to ride the beast. Right. And Rendon and, and Soto were just better than everybody else in that in that postseason. So as the guy... Dave uh, Martinez. Yeah, Dave Martinez. You're right. Right on. As the guy said in the movie Bull Durham, baseball is an easy game. You hit the ball, you catch the ball, you throw the ball. Now, stats have always been part of the game, but w- w- why have stats now become so damn complicated? I I can't follow, and I'm an avid fan, I can't follow all of the whips and the this and that's and the OPS, and it just, it's almost impossible for a fan to follow also, unless you're you know, this is what you live and die with. Well, there's certain ones out there that I, I, I make a point in talking about in the book that I love stats. I love numbers, but they have to be real numbers to me. And some of these things that if they have a weighted, a created, or an adjusted put towards the set, that just means that they're not real. They're, they're qualifiers that say they're not real. So if you want to talk about weighted runs created plus – which weighted runs created plus there's three things in there that are qualifiers run is the actual only thing in there that means anything to me but i don't know how you can throw something uh a bunch of numbers into a a machine and spit out this thing and say okay this is good um because to me they're not real if you give me real numbers i'll look at real numbers and yes i'm still a firm believer of the old school numbers i like homers i like ribbies and those two guys, if I want to talk about them again, Rendon and Soto, Rendon led the league in RBIs in 2019 when the Nationals won the World Series. Soto hit behind the guy that led the league in RBIs and still drove in over 100 himself. Wow. So that tells me that those guys have a knack for doing something, and there's nothing wrong with a knack for driving in a run. And if somebody tells me that an RBI – is not a very good stat in the baseball world. I'm really not willing to listen to that. Hey, uh, Bill, Eb here. What the heck is a weighted run created plus? <laughs> well, I really can't tell you. <laughs> if, but if you look it up, and there's so many of those stats out there, it, I believe what they're trying to do is they're trying to put a value on a player it's almost like war wins above replacement which still it really doesn't mean anything to me because it's a fictitious number but they're trying to put values on players by what the guy does and they come up with a conclusion and if you really do look these things up and you pick any one of the statistical things out that you can research it and look it up when you start reading it and you start trying to gather information and you start trying to put two and two together yourself you're going to go crazy because there's an awful lot of what if, that if, this, this, and everything else, and it just doesn't add up to anything. So if you give me a guy who hits 300, I still believe in batting average. If you give me a guy who's scoring 100 runs and you give me a guy that's driving in 100 runs, I'm pretty much saying he's going to be in the MVP conversation at the end of the year, and that's kind of what you want. Hey, hey Bill, it's Pat Darcy here. Um, I played, I came up with Houston organization in 72. I played in Columbus, Georgia in the Southern League. And your dad was at Asheville back then, managed in Asheville. Were you, did you around then? I was around. In fact, those, those were the last three years my dad managed in the minor leagues. It was 72, 73, and 74. 
And I'm not trying to date you or age you, but I was You can't. It was, it's been 47 years <laughs> since he played in the World Series, for crying out loud. He's an old dude. But, you know, that short porch in Asheville. I like, I like that short porch out there in Asheville, huh? Right, and Field? You know what? I, I still believe that that is the same park that's in the same location. They might have done a few renovations here or there, but the location is the same because there was an old high school football stadium up the hill in that short porch. Well, the short porch was in right, though, right? Yes, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, but up, up left field, when those guys like, um, I think Jim Fuller kind of came through there at that time, and there might have been another guy named Pat Renfro, that they were trying to hit balls up there into that football stadium that was up the hill. <laughs> I, I I remember as well as a 7, 8, 9-year-old kid could remember at very fond times of Asheville. Yeah, we we stayed in this place called the Battery Park Hotel, which was built like 1910. And we get to we go get our room key, and they'd say, "Your door can't open. You got to go through one of the windows." You know, it was just <laughs> it, was, it was an old old hotel. Man, I'll tell you that only the best, only the best of the Southern League. <laughs> and we had this well, guy. You, you remember a guy named Jackie Brandt, right? I, I don't remember that name. He played for Baltimore and the Giants like that. He was our manager then. He was doing us kind of a little flaky. Well, on these road trips, we would leave after the game at Columbus, Georgia, and go all night in an old Greyhound bus, get in like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning. We had a day game, and it was supposed to be down at the, you know, meet down at 11 o'clock. So everybody's down there at 11 o'clock, and Jackie's sitting in a chair. It's kind of raining out some. So it's 11 o'clock, 11.30. Finally, I said, Jackie... When's the bus leaving? It's not. The game got called. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and he didn't want to give you up any heads up. <laughs> no, no heads up at all. You know, I was thinking when I played for the Reds, we didn't have computers. We had a piece of paper with a baseball field on it, and every every hitter who were pitched like they would a, a line where he hit the ball. That's how we looked at that way. There were no computers back then, but I mean, when Pete talk about Pete, Pete Rose, when he had two strikes on him, he said, "Now the pitcher's in trouble." <laughs> That's how you looked at it. Right. And you know what you what you basically said was now they have a term for it's called analytics. But mm. if you used the information that you had at hand when you played, yes. And if it happened to be a piece of paper and memory. That's the piece of information you used. I think it's funny in today's game where all the information gets thrown out and spit out on a computer printout. And the manager has it in his pocket. And I think they have a tendency to, to not view the game with their true eyes and actually use that information to make the final decision. Um, I think that was a very good case with Blake Snell in the World Series last year against the Dodgers. Um, I'm not denying that some pitchers have a problem getting through the lineup three times. Right. But Blake Snell that day was not maybe the Blake Snell that's had problems getting through a lineup through the third time. And I think they're willing to dismiss the information, the, the human brain. They're, they're willing to dismiss that for the computer printout because they think in the long haul that's going to you know, end up being right more times in the human brain. I don't know if that's actually accurate or not, but I kind of still like watching the game and making a determination of what I see right in front of me. So field managers get second-guessed a lot in the press and by fans about decisions. You talked about you know, with Blake Snell just a second ago. How much of the decisions, and, and some blame decisions that come from upstairs, as they say, 
uh, Dave Roberts of of the Dodgers, um, um, you know, has a lot of uh, people who say that he's got interference by people up in the box. He says not. What's the real story about the amount of autonomy that a manager and his bench coach have during the course of the game in today's baseball world? Well, I think it's far less than what it used to be. I don't think there's oh, any question about that. Now, I do think that there's still some guys that um, um, may have this little gut burning in there. And the reason why you can make gut decisions as a baseball person is because you've experienced things in your baseball life before. And you said, you know, I've seen this before. I, I know what this looks like. And to make a determination like a manager might make a pinch-hitting move because what you talked about to begin this segment with about, you know, lefty against righty or day game right. or whatever else, maybe the piece of information says that a right-hand hitter should hit for this left-hand hitter against that certain left-hand pitcher. And, okay, I get it. That's called platooning. That's happened for years. But if the left-hand hitter has got two hits in the game and he's seeing the ball extremely well, <laughs> not to mention he might have had a pretty good week leading up to these two hits in the game, yeah. I might want to roll the dice and say, you know what, I know what the spreadsheet says. I get it. I understand it. But, damn, I want to see this lefty go up there and face the lefty because he feels a little bit saucy right now, <laughs> and he's got to have an opportunity to go play. So long at bats, uh, when you and I set today's interview, I mentioned to you in my email the 22-pitch uh, at-bat by Louis uh, Yorme of the Mets in a game against the Cardinals a week or so before. MLB has changed the rules on on how many pitches and uh, you know a, a pitcher has to go and how many players in order to kind of keep the pace of the game going. Um, but are these are these rule changes influencing in a positive way today's game? You know, I, I think that with everything, there's some sort of you know evolution that happens. Um, the rules last year, and we have to you know, keep that in mind, that it was a quite unique season with the 60-game schedule because of the pandemic. But I didn't hate you know, the extra inning guy starting on second base. I thought I was going to hate it. I didn't hate it. Now, I'm not saying I'm in love with it, and I'm not saying I want it to go forward, but I didn't hate it. And I think if we just give things a little bit of a chance, it works. The one thing about the pitcher having to face three hitters, and there was uh, some commentary on, okay, that's going to totally knock out a left-handed specialist. And I actually thought about that in a different way, and I said I actually think it puts more emphasis on a left-hand specialist. Because if you finish an inning, meaning if you come in with two outs, you can only face one hitter if you want, yeah. if you end up getting him out. So I thought that maybe – that type of a situation, that's where the manager's got to earn a little bit of buck, uh, his dollars, because he's sitting there going, okay, I feel real good about this matchup. Even though Mike Trout might be on the bench or in the dugout or on deck circle, I got this lefty to get him out before Mike Trout comes. I'm banking on this dude doesn't does his job. So if he does his job and a lefty gets one hitter out, Manager can make a pitching change because that's not delaying the game in any way. So I think some rules need to have a little bit of space to breathe, a little bit of time to breathe um, to, to see what happens. And 
and and let's see where where that goes. I know they're trying an awful lot of stuff in the minor leagues this year, and I'm certainly interested to see how that plays out. But I'm trying not to make as many knee-jerk reactions as probably I once did when I was about 30. So let's talk about the shift for a second. Um, and I asked a question about the shift from another perspective. With the use of stats, as we talked about earlier in the show, the manager knows exactly where to position the men in the field. As a fan, it seems the shift has robbed hitters of a lot of singles and doubles. So if the other team knows where a player is going to hit the ball, why don't hitters make the adjustment, you know, follow <laughs> Wee Willie Keeler, hit them where they ain't? Or or, or the bat, or the hitters just too selfish to do that? Uh, it could be a combination. Um, I remember a couple years ago, um, Rizzo of the Cubs came up to home plate. They had the overshift on him. Rizzo bunted down the third baseline, got a knock. His next time up, they had the overshift on. Rizzo bunted down the third base line. This is in the same game. And now he's two for two with two knocks. The third time he came up, they didn't play the overshift on him. So I really don't understand how it's that difficult to understand, if you're a hitter, what you need to do. Now, with that said, I'm still a firm believer that the overall overshift doesn't work near as well as what some people say it does. And I put a chapter in the book talking about Babbitt. State That's of play. One of those new, new, new terms where the ball put in play, what's the average? The average is pretty much held true from 2014 through 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. 2020 was a little bit different because of, I think, circumstances. But 2020's overall league-wide batting average was also down. Right. So I think that that stood to um, you know stands to make uh, some reason right there. But I really don't understand why some guys don't just put the ball down on the ground because in this analytical world that we're living in, boy, does it seem like front offices love walks. Well, if you love a walk, wouldn't you love a guy to bunt for a base hit and yeah. actually get on first base against the overshift to see if they might straighten them up a little bit? So. I don't know if it's guys being selfish because they want to hit the ball out of the ballpark, but like I said, Anthony Rizzo, I was watching that game sitting up on the desk. First time up, bunted. Second time up, bunted. He's two for two. Third time comes up, they play him straight up. Yeah. You know, Bill, Billy, the shift's been on forever. I remember I told said earlier in the show, I was pitching against Willie McCovey. You know, line drives you my legs, and Concepcion caught it over second base. But it seems like now <laughs> all the hitters, I mean, most hitters, their only goal is to hit a home run. It, it, it seems that way because, I, I, for the life of me, I don't quite understand it. And, yes, um, they, they shifted against Ted Williams. That, that, that happened a long time ago. I remember playing – uh, out in front of the baggie in the Metrodome when Ken Herbeck was up. I remember bye-bye Balboni. I'd play him over. <laughs> I remember that name. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dave Winfield when the count got to three and one. But we had the ability to, to move within the count also and who was pitching. It seems now that this spreadsheet that has been developed saying this is where this person hits the ball it doesn't matter who's pitching. It doesn't matter what the score of the game is. This is the way we're going to play it because the odds are in our favor this happens. Mm, yeah. And I don't quite understand that because I would certainly like to think 
that there are some guys, like I've already mentioned Rendon and Soto from the Nationals, but Bruce mentioned that 20-pitch at bat that was earlier in spring training. I heard the guy's interview. He says, I was just trying to compete. I was just trying to put the ball in play. Yeah. And when you have that mentality, that fixes everything. If you go up there trying to get your your A swing off three times, and if you don't hit it, you walk back to the dugout and you're okay with that, I have a little bit of problem with that. I don't think that that works. In fact, I think we can go back and look at the past World Series winners, including the Dodgers in that pandemic year, the Nationals before that, um, the Red Sox when they won, they cut down their swing and miss rate from the year before when they got dismissed from the playoffs. When the Houston Astros won the World Series, they cut down their swing and miss rate from the year before when they got dismissed from the playoffs. The Kansas City Royals certainly put the ball in play and were pain in everybody's backside. So I just don't understand why we, we don't come to the conclusion in order to win, and Bruce said it, you hit it, you pitch it, you catch it, and if you do those three things better than the other team, you still win. The game's not any different. All right, we, we're almost out of time. I want a, a real quick uh, uh, answer to these. Who do you think is going to win the National League and the American League championships, and who's going to win the World Series this year? Oh, wow. I love me some predictions. Not. Um, <laughs> let's see. I, I'm going to have to go with the Dodgers again because they are they're really good. I don't I don't see any way around that. One minute. And I'll <laughs> go to the old-time history and take two, like, chalk picks, I guess. I'll go with the Yankees. All right. Well, Billy, who's going to win the World Series? Well, the Yankees are time, isn't it? Well, I don't know about that, but being a Dodger fan, but but I'll take that. And we'll we'll you know maybe next year we'll be able to be fortunate enough to have you back on the show. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Bill's book, State of Play, published by Diversion and available anywhere. It ain't scientific; it's old school. And thanks to author Will Gagin and also former Cincinnati Reds pitcher Pat Darcy for a great show. We have another great show for you next week when we'll be talking to Heritage Foundation founder Ed Folder. Until next Saturday, this is Bruce Ash, Ed Wilkinson, and Pat Darcy, wishing you all <laughs> a very pleasant good afternoon. Play ball. <laughs> Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. 
We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911.